Thank you for listening to Therapy for Guys. My name is Kike Autry, and I'm a licensed professional counselor in Katy, Texas. In this podcast, I want to explore the issues that men stay silent about, our struggles with anxiety and depression, our relationship issues, obstacles that we face with a diagnosis like ADHD or autism or OCD, and our big existential crises, those related to spirituality and religion, to larger cultural realities, and to the question of the meaning of life. If you enjoy this podcast and you would like to learn more about me, I would encourage you to check out my website. You can find it at kikeautry.com. That's Q-U-I-Q-U-E-A-U-T-R-E-Y.com. I would love to hear from you. I would love to connect. And as always, remember, continue the conversation. In this episode of the podcast, I speak with Dr. Nick Walker. Nick is an author, educator, and futurist best known for her book, Neuroqueer Heresies, and her work on neurodiversity and neuroqueer theory. Nick is also a professor of psychology at California Institute of Integral Studies and a senior Aikido instructor at the Aiki Arts Center in Berkeley, California. Nick also writes speculative fiction, including the urban fantasy webcomic Weird Luck. We explore many different things in this episode as we discuss her book, Neuroqueer Heresies. Some of the episode highlights include the neurodiversity paradigm, neuroqueer theory, gender and embodiment, power and privilege, essentialism and policing, Aikido, and so much more. I'm fascinated by Dr. Nick Walker's scholarship. She's a wonderful person, extremely bright and creative and articulate. I feel like I learned so much and was challenged in my own work as a therapist that works within the neurodiversity paradigm. Most of my clients are autistic or identify as neurodivergent in one way or another. And so this is a very important topic for me. It's something that I live with on a daily basis. 
and it's something that I've given my life to. So it's wonderful to engage the scholarship of someone like Nick Walker. And, and I just hope that you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. As always, I want to encourage you to take the things that you learned today, the things that were explored, and find someone in your life to have a conversation with. Take them out to lunch, go to a bar, grab a drink, and just explore some of these really important topics. Educate yourself and continue the conversation. And I want to encourage you, if you enjoyed this episode, if you like any of my episodes, please go to the Apple Podcast app. And there, don't just leave me a five-star review or a rating, but please take the time to write in a review. Talk about some of the ways that you enjoy this podcast. Talk about some of the things that you've learned, because this is one of the best ways to help listeners find out about the podcast and, and learn more about what we're doing here on Therapy for Guys. Thanks again for listening. And as always, guys, continue the conversation. Thank you so much for being a guest on my podcast, Therapy for Guys. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a few months now, and I'm really excited about connecting and just having this conversation with you. Thanks for having me here. Yeah. So where, where I kind of like to start is really directed toward the listeners. For those who haven't heard about your scholarship, you know, who wouldn't know who you are, would you mind just spending a few moments talking about, yeah, what you're up to, what your scholarship is about, and, you know, where you work, what you're interested in, and then from there we can jump into the conversation? Yeah, sure. It's always so uh, difficult, I find, to do that introduction because my work is all over the place. I do I do so many different things from so many different angles. And that's one of the things but, I love about you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm a, I'm a professor of psychology at uh, California Institute of Integral Studies. Oh, yeah. And so that's the uh, professional piece. My uh, my master's degree is in uh, somatic psychology. My doctorate is actually in a, a field called transformative studies, where I study transformative learning processes. Mm. And I am um, pretty wildly transdisciplinary with my uh, with my work. I'm also an Aikido teacher. I've been an Aikido teacher for many many years, and. Uh, 
so that uh, so much of my work is very embodiment focused. Yes. Very focused, particularly on this juncture of embodiment and creativity. Um, I'm also uh, autistic, and so being autistic led me into neurodiversity scholarship very early on when neurodiversity scholarship was uh, not even a thing yet, kind of been with it from the beginning, laid some groundwork for this emerging field of neurodiversity studies. Yes. Um, and uh, it's uh, it's interesting to be on a Therapy for Guys podcast. I love I love the title and the concept. I'm a an ex guy. I'm uh, I came out as a trans woman fairly late in life and uh, have not really gone deep into the physical transition process. Still, most people still read me as a guy, and so it's very interesting. Always. Uh, working around this topic of masculinity for me because I, you know, experienced being immersed in masculinity and not fitting well with it and then leaving it and and finding out that it was a a shell that I had to hatch out of to become myself. And that's an ongoing process. And uh, of course my, 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 queerness and gender queerness and eventual transness uh also led me to uh you know the field of gender studies and queer theory and so uh part of where my work has gone uh over the past uh several years in particular is into uh this uh what i call neuroqueer theory which is what happens when we extend the uh, queer theory lens into uh, the area of neurodiversity. Yes. And so that's, uh, that's an exciting sort of thing I'm exploring. And then I'm, uh, I'm also uh, a writer of speculative fiction. I write mm. a web comic, a web comic called weird luck, co-write, co-write, co-create that with a little creative team. And uh, so that, that fiction writing is part of it too. You know, I sort of, it's uh I mean, uh, as as someone who studies uh, creativity and how to access creativity, I'm very into gender creativity and uh, creativity with one's life, but also with just the, the plain old creative process of producing writing and art. So uh, I have that practice as well. So yeah, that's a that's kind of a rundown of, of the major things I do. I love that. No, and and I really, in a moment, want to jump into your phenomenal work, Neuroqueer Heresies, which I just finished actually listening to. I, I would encourage anyone who's listening to either read it. Um, they can You can actually find several of the chapters in your wonderful website, neuroqueer.com, which I'll include in the show notes. But I think it recently came on on, on Audible as well. And uh, mm-hmm. the person did a great job reading it, and 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 it's actually a pretty quick kind of listen, and it's some of the best stuff I've ever accessed in the neurodiversity paradigm literature. So Thank kudos you. to you for your phenomenal work. Thanks, and I'm yeah, I'm thrilled. Uh, I, wrote, I mean, I wrote the book uh, in 2021, um, and like you say, there's some stuff on or some old stuff on the website that went into the book. There's sort of some early, you know, essays I wrote over the course of a decade. 
and uh, collected in the book, and then my commentary on those essays, and then a whole lot of just new material that just came flowing out of me yeah. while I started when I started putting the book together. So it, I thought it was going to be mostly a collection of old work, but about two thirds of it is completely new for the book. And then I was compl- so thrilled with how the audio book came out. You know, uh, I mean, I worked with a, a autonomous press, you know, a small indie publisher, and uh, uh, didn't really have the budget for uh, an audio book. Uh, but then once the book came out and started doing surprisingly well, I got approached by this big audio book company nice. and uh, really worked with. Uh, 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 Tantor Media, the audiobook company, have been lovely about it. They worked with me to find the right narrator, and that was one of the sort of, uh, you know, interesting transgender pieces was that I didn't, uh, you know, I, I really wanted a uh, um, uh, 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 cis woman narrator whose voice sounded not like my actual speaking voice uh which is too masculine for my taste but more like the way my voice sounds in my head oh wonderful and yeah janet metzger the voice actor they found just did an amazing job i I have to agree you know and i was actually my latest interview was with an author who actually read the book himself but we were we were kind of joking that sometimes the narrators aren't that great and so it kind of turns you off but but yours did a wonderful job i think reading the book so i'm I'm glad you found her (laughs) yeah me too you know, and, and I have to say too, but before we move forward, just kind of a shout out to Joel Schwartz, who I've had on the podcast before. I believe his practice is Total Spectrum Counseling. He's the one who initially turned me on to your work. And so I'm just grateful to him for kind of connecting us. And uh, yeah, I was uh, wonderful. Yo, yeah, yeah, he's, he's, I don't know him well, but he seems like a wonderful guy. And, and Nick, let me just say thank you for what you said about being willing to come on this podcast called therapy for guys i've actually kind of regretted naming it that in some ways sometimes (laughs) i was talking to my wife about this i've had people who have declined an offer to to be on the podcast because i think they are weary of some of the more toxic forms of masculinity in our culture and i think they think it's going to be like a joe rogan or something like that Mm -hmm. and and i i don't see myself in that vein I, i think i'm in some ways the opposite of that kind of form of masculinity so I'm grateful uh, that you, as a as a trans person, is is going to come on and and help me kind of rethink, you know, masculinity and gender. I, I think you say in the book that the neuroqueer uh, paradigm kind of fucks with gender and like mm-hmm. gender expectations, and I just love that way yeah. of putting it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and I think that yeah, I mean, you you don't seem very Joe Rogan like to me uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> so far, but. Uh, but yeah, no, I think that uh, it's difficult. Being a guy is difficult these days. Um, yeah. You know, I really see it. I mean, having having uh, you know been uh, you know assigned male at birth and and raised to be male and, and you know kind of grappling with that masculinity and what's really me and what's like the learned shell of masculinity I had to put on to survive and just being close friends with so many cisgender guys. I mean, I really see how difficult it is. And the the main model for masculinity is so toxic and there's so few models for what it means to be, uh, to be a good, 
man and so much of you know what we're taught it means to be a man is is so toxic and so harmful to uh everyone including the people who even the people who do it uh yes you know do that do that performance of classical masculinity and it's and we see that we people are people are falling apart mm. you know i mean look all the i mean all all the mass shooters are you know cis, cisgender young cisgender men yes. and you know just uh so much warfare and violence that's that's masculinity driven and it's like i think men are desperate for some other some other way to be that's more meaningful and uh i think there's a hollowness uh and to the masculinity that men are taught to perform the way that they're taught to do it it just uh um uh is so is so destructive it's so unfulfilling and they don't know what else to do except lean into it more and more yes no well said so so nick but before we get into kind of the 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 meat of of your book i i have a lot of things that i would love to explore with you what one of the things i like to do with my guests is to just go back to childhood for just one second and ask this question whether it's philosophy or religion or spirituality or some other sort of values based framework was there something that you kind of picked up early on that still plays a role in your thinking st- still kind of shapes you in important ways um, and if not, maybe you could talk about how you've sort of moved away from some of the things you picked up early on. Yeah. Uh, when I was 12 years old, I started, um, you know, I was, I was, because I was, you know, a trans girl and didn't know it at all. Uh, you know, I'm old enough. There wasn't really language for that available to me when I was a kid. Sure. Um, and, but I, did not do the masculine gender performance well. There was clearly something uh, queer about me and being autistic kind of added to that. Uh, And um, so I was, I was bullied a lot when I was a little kid. And when I was 12, I made a decision to fight back Uh, and just to, I mean, just to start fighting bullies physically. Uh, and I, I did realize quickly that I wasn't actually very good at that and should uh, probably learn a martial art or something. And so I started practicing Aikido. Um, Aikido school had just opened up in my town. Uh, it was just, oh, I was there like the first class um, and everybody else there was an adult and uh it did you know it did teach me uh how to fight but it, the the most important lessons you know the things that have the, what's kept me practicing for 42 years now and teaching it for my wow. whole adult life uh uh really the most important lessons are about um uh beauty uh how how to how to be present and respond and in relationship in the world and in one's own embodiment with grace and harmony and how to, uh, to find one's essentially, uh, express one's inner beauty and in this particular, uh, 
know, cultivate, cultivate a beauty and a harmony and, in one's embodiment and in one's embodied relation with others and the world and uh, find, uh, find some uh, constructive way of dealing with uh, life's difficulties that comes out of that embodied spirit of harmony. Um, I didn't pick up all that when I was 12, uh, certainly, uh, it took me a very long time to pick that up and it's still an ongoing struggle, uh, against, you know, trauma and acquired, you know, toxic masculinity and, you know, just being, a, a kind of a, you know, a, a cantankerous person. Sometimes it's an ongoing struggle to, you know, embody that spirit of grace and harmony. But what I did learn right away that shaped the rest of my life was just the fact that transformation is possible. Mm. That if we can, if we can imagine a better, more beautiful, more creative way to be, uh, we can make it happen if we find the right practices. And if we pursue those practices with enough dedication that it's, it's possible and worthwhile. And that was, that's the lesson that shaped all of my work and my whole life. Wow. I love that, Nick. So you are the second guest so far on this podcast that has talked about the central role that Aikido has played in their life. The first one was um, Dr. Laura Brown, who's kind of a pioneer in feminist psychotherapy. And, and, I, and, I, and I love that, that both of you are into this type of martial arts because I do think in the current moment, a lot of martial arts is in you know the social media sphere and the podcast sphere, and I think it sometimes gets associated with problematic performances of masculinity. And so I, oh, yeah. I love that you and others in this world are talking about martial arts in a way that isn't so toxic. Yeah, and it's it's Aikido has a really interesting history around that. Uh, because the founder of the art, you know, it's a 20th century art, mm. uh, merged from the 20th century. And, uh, the founder, you know, the founder of the art lived from like, uh, the late 1800s until 1969. And he, uh, he spent the first 40 years of his life just, uh, out to be the toughest martial artists in Japan and mastering all these highly competitive, very violent arts and um he he had a crisis around that in uh, uh world war ii because he was uh, uh a pacifist in terms of not believing in killing and he saw mm. you know the i mean the japanese were you know really very much you know uh 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 a violent aggressor during world war two and committing war crimes. And he was horrified at that. And his, uh, uh, what, what he saw was that, uh, the kind of competitive spirit that he had been, you know, practicing in the martial arts for his whole life was, uh, a contributor to that. The, 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 the violent competitive masculine spirit of the martial arts was part of what contributed to uh, creating this culture of violence that mm. could explode into war. 
And so he uh, set out to reshape his martial arts practice into something that was not competitive and that taught uh, uh, that taught compassion and connection instead of competition. And uh, Aikido is the result of that. And it's uh, it's interesting to see it in uh, to see Aikido uh, in its encounters with uh, with toxic masculinity and competitive values and such because some people uh, people come to Aikido looking ideally to transcend that to grow into something else. Wow. But some people come in and are just very put off by Aikido. They can't relate to something that's non-competitive and that involves a, a softness to it. That's not what they came. They were looking for in martial arts. They were looking for, you know, violent blood sports. <sighs> yeah. And, um, and then there are also people, you know, there's kind of a shadow side to the art too, mm. where people come in, uh, uh, I think Steven Seagal stands out as an example. People oh. come into people come into the art, and they find a way to twist it back towards toxic masculinity. They get very competitive and aggressive in their practice. I, I remember and, him from my childhood. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize yeah, he was Aikido. He, wow. Yeah, he's scary because you know. I mean, there's good solid Aikido technique there, but the spirit of you know even just the 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 uh retribution oriented mm. themes of most of his films are like so contrary to to the art and uh so i think that it's so easily uh it's so easy even to take a uh and we see this even also with you know religions that have a gospel of love and yet somehow turn intolerant too it's so easy to take oh yeah uh, a liberatory path of of love and beauty and for people to uh uh twist it back in the wrong direction and mm. I, it's a constant contest it's a constant like as an aikido teacher i've been after all these years there's so many times where i encounter you know there's a uh you know, a student and I'm trying to, uh, you know, work with them and, um, they're, you know, they're in a macho stage early in their training before they've really picked up the harmony. And it's like, I, I realize like there's this temptation. Oh, I can just force this. I can just like show them that my way works by throwing them really hard, but no, that's completely contrary to what we're here for. Mm. Like, and and getting myself to soften in those situations and uh, uh, not get into the macho contest, you know, it just remains an ongoing mindfulness practice, I think, for every Aikido teacher. Wow. Oh, man, those are some powerful reflections. Wow. So I, I know, like, like I said a moment ago, I, I want to get into the, the real heart of your book, uh, Neuroqueer Heresies. But and and you do sort of get into this a little bit, but kind of where I want to start, I think it probably connects to what you do in terms of your role as a professor. I think one of the things that makes you unique, at least in my understanding, in the neurodiversity community is your work around somatic psychotherapy and embodiment, and then thinking about mm -hmm. gender and, and some of the neurodiversity stuff with that. 
I, I know this is a big question, but can, can you speak to how you understand embodiment? Maybe what some of your intellectual sources and heroes have been and, and how that plays a role in something like autism and, you know, n- neurodiversity? Yeah, um, it is a big question. Right? <laughs> and um, I, uh, the area of somatic psychology that has really uh, drawn me uh, and is very connected to just my interest in cultivating creativity okay. as well is um, this idea of. Uh, moving authentically Mm. and there was um you probably know this because you you know do a therapy podcast but for readers who (laughs) don't you know uh, one of the the great pioneers of uh child psychology was dw winnicott oh yeah and winnicott uh talked about uh the true self versus the false self and how children every you know infant has a true self which kind of is like an innate character it's very fluid it's like this combination of innate character and the child's authentic creative responses to the sensory world like the child just spontaneously reaching for something and exploring it and playing with it and and that that's those spontaneous exploratory impulses and creative impulses uh are 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 the true self and it's very fluid it's not like your true self has like you know uh uh uh, a set of you know quantifiable characteristics you know like the you know myers-briggs type or something like that (laughs) it's much more much more fluid than that. It's just this ongoing capacity for spontaneous mm. uh, emergence and spontaneous uh, creative play and creative engagement with the world. And then the false self is the uh, the learned social performances that children, you know, that everybody learns just as part of being enculturated. And Winnicott said, you know, if the child is not giving enough space to uh, explore its creativity and express the true self in authentic gesture and interaction, uh, the true self can get just completely buried under the false self. And then you get what you get is uh, this very you get these rigid personalities that have difficulty accessing authentic creativity and authentic Mm. connection. And it's can be that can look like toxic masculinity or, you know, uh, it's not necessarily masculinity that that happens to people of all genders, but, uh, but all of those, those learned rigid ways of being where the person is composed kind of entirely of their, their traumas and their internalized social and cultural learning, but the authentic is not coming to the surface. Authentic, uh, truly original uh, creative play is not really uh, enabled to to uh, surface in the person, and so um, I I'm very interested in somatically in you know, the somatic expression of the true self, that it is very embodied in the, what Winnicott called the spontaneous gesture. 
and in uh, somatic techniques that reclaim that capacity, that recover mm. and cultivate that capacity. So, um, so that involved, you know, sort of uh, studying the nature of the rigidity. What so you know, another somatic psychology pioneer Wilhelm Reich called character armor, like yes. the deeply embedded tensions that hold back aspects of the true self. And so uh, um, there's like, how do you break down those deep tensions and how do you find again that capacity of the true self that we're all born with and so many of us lose or suppress to some degree? Um, And so um, uh, one of my teachers at CIS, uh, uh, Dr. Ian Grand, who I mentioned in the, uh, in my in the book in Neuroqueer Heresies yes. uh, was a huge influence there, and unfortunately, Ian passed away without ever uh, getting organized enough to write an entire book. But he left behind he left behind a small number of really beautiful and now hard to find writings oh, man. Um, that uh, are just magnificent and just sort of in old obscure journals and such. Okay. And I was going to ask uh, you if there's one place online I could go. Cause I would love to read that stuff. <laughs> yeah. There's not really, oh, there's man. not really an online repository. Sadly. I mean, the best, the best piece on somatic psychology, like really catches the essence of what I'm about is a piece that he wrote in 1978 called The Marvelous in the Real. And he wrote it in a in a academic somatic psychology journal that went out of business before they even started putting academic journals online. Oh, damn. And I have like this ancient this ancient PDF of a scanned photocopy of of it. And it's just like I I so want to find a way to bring that stuff into print eventually. Mm. But uh, but then there's there's others who have published. Um, another teacher of mine, John Conger, has a beautiful book called The Body and Recovery that mm. talks about that. Um, so there is there is some stuff like that out there. Um, and uh, that's yeah. Then there's there's particular practices. There's a whole sort of somatic uh, practice slash you know, spontaneous dance thing called authentic movement that's out there that okay. involves exploring that. Um, I got, I learned a lot also from working with, uh, Ontario Ali, who was, a uh, uh, underground film director, author, mm. and, uh, for, for many years, Ontario ran a group called paratheatrical research. That was an experimental physical theater group that did this like Jungian infused deep trance state movement. Oh, wow. And that was, I was involved in that for decades um, uh, while he lived in Berkeley before he moved up to Portland. And unfortunately he's uh, uh, in his final years now, Mm. um, uh, not, you know, not, not well physically. And, uh, but uh, you know, he left behind this really extraordinary uh, legacy. That's not very well known and sounds uh, fascinating it's amazing work i've never seen anything like it and so <laughs> that really shaped me too um and still continues to shape my work so yeah there's all of that and i guess tying that back to the neurodiversity question yes um 
I mean, autistic people have very distinctive ways of moving and very distinctive ways of that embodiment is related to cognition. And what happens is, uh, like stimming. uh, Yeah. Stimming. Exactly. You know, this whole, like using, using bodily movement and sensory self-stimulation, touching and smelling things and just grooving on the physical senses and bodily movement and rocking back and forth and all those distinctively autistic things. You know, you can see it kind of in the way I move my hands, the way my head moves, what I thought it's all like, there's these very distinctive ways and they're cross-cultural. That's what, that's what's really striking about it. And the true self thing is that you'll see autistic people from vastly different cultures with vastly different conceptions of body language moving in some similar ways that somehow innate to autistic cognition Oh yeah, and deeper than culturally learned uh, body language. So, uh, so part of that was like autistic people are are uh, taught generally, like socialized into this normativity, into trying to imitate the embodiment of non-autistic people and mm. to suppress autistic ways of moving, and that cuts off uh, our access to a lot of the capacities of our consciousness, self-regulatory capacities Mm. and cognitive capacities. And what, uh, what happened for me was when I started reclaiming the ability to stim and move autistically, when I started breaking down the rigidity, I built up all this bodily rigidity, uh, to, to protect myself when I was a kid, like suppressed my autistic ways of moving a lot. Uh, for uh, to, to fit in, so I wouldn't be targeted. Sure. And when I when I started in my thirties uh, to reclaim that, uh, and you know, gradually pursued that, uh, you know, for a long it's a long journey of reclaiming these uh, spontaneous capacities for autistic movement. That's really like to me very much about Winnicott's true self and reclaiming that. Uh, when I started doing that. I, 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 my capacity to just be okay mm. enormously increased. Like my, you know, uh, years of, you know, depression and anxiety just kind of gradually went away. And, and, uh, you know, this capacities for joy and grace started emerging my aikido practice improved my ability to connect with other people in the world improved just be present in my body and then there was this expansion of cognitive capacities too but you know i mean i i'm a college professor now i didn't start going to college (laughs) i didn't start going to college until i was in my 30s and uh I kind of couldn't get it together cognitively to like focus well Mm. enough in my capacity to do that and to be creative like really came out of being able to move creatively mm. and spontaneously and authentically. So yeah. That's, that's so beautiful. Uh, yeah. You know, Nick, one of the things I really love about what you've been talking about just there is framing the true self through embodiment as, as an embodied reality. I've, mm-hmm. I've been a part of in the past sort of religious and spiritual circles that have picked up Whitacott's idea of the true self or the false self but it always seems like this disembodied, almost immaterial substance in us, like the soul. And, and I'm not necessarily against that, but I think it misses what you're describing, which is the centrality of connecting that to 
soma, which is the Greek word for body, for you know mm-hmm. the fact that as you write in your incredible book, we're, we're not just minds, we're not just souls, we're mind bodies. Yeah. I, I just think that's really important to highlight. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So are, are, are you okay if we kind of jump into neuroqueer heresies and, and I just kind of ask you a couple questions that I had? Let's do it. Let's okay. jump. Okay, awesome. Um, and, and I'll say this. If, if I ask a question that you feel like could be asked in a better way or if I'm missing one of the threads, please feel free to stop me and you know <laughs> point me in the right direction. Absolutely. Okay. One of the places I want to start is just by you helping us understand what I think you described as the difference between a medical versus a social model of thinking about disability Mm -hmm. and and maybe just kind of unpacking that and and then how that would connect to, to autism specifically. Yeah. That, and that, 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 Medical model of disability versus social model of disability is absolutely not original with me or with the neurodiversity movement. It comes from uh, disability rights activism and this whole field of disability studies. And actually, um, so it's kind of not my field. And the reason that I wrote about it in Neuroqueer Heresies was because I was using, uh, you know, I use the book as a, a textbook. I teach an intro to neurodiversity studies course. Oh, okay. And what would happen is that every semester, students would come in with, you know, no background in disability studies because uh, it's not really, like, taught most of the time. Right. Schools of undergraduate students come in, they've had no exposure to this these concepts uh, around disability. And so every semester I'd have to explain it. And so I was like, you know I'm just going to write it into the book so that I don't have to explain it every semester. <laughs> there you go. But uh, there's there's a lot of wonderful uh, uh, writing about it in the field of disability studies and sort of the nuances of it and such. But essentially, the medical model locates disability uh, within people. So a disability, say so you have a disability, and this is something that's, uh, you know, uh, a, a medical flaw that you have a medical a medical defect and uh the social model says um uh you know people may have impairments you know you can't see you can't see if you can't walk you can't walk there's legitimate impairments that people have but the degree to which people are disabled is about how their particular needs and abilities and impairments uh interact with the way society accommodates them, the way the environment mm. accommodates them. So um, so disability is not an innate, objective, fixed thing in a person. It's always relational. We think about it. The opposite of disabled is not healthy. The opposite of disabled is enabled. Mm. So society is set up. Yeah, society is set up to enable our participation. You know, you go, you go, you live in your native country, um, and you go to, you know, use an ATM or catch a bus or anything, you know, and there's instructions and signs and such in your native language. And so you can read them and your participation is enabled in that way. Um now, if these, if all the, if all this information, you know, the instructions on the ATM, the buttons on the ATM, and the, uh, you know, 
bus stop schedule signs. If that's all available in Braille, then it enables blind people to have access. Mm. And if there's nothing like that to accommodate blind people, well, then the blind people are disabled by that. The blindness exists as an impairment either way, but the degree to which blind people are disabled or any other uh, people are disabled is about how much are their needs being accommodated in the local environment. So, um, so then it becomes so that the medical model really is like, okay, well, the only hope for you is if we fix you, if mm. we find a cure, if we find a way to fix you. But the social model says, no, we can, we can enable the participation of more people, including people with a variety of, you know, uh, impairments and illnesses, or just who are, uh, whose basic need, access needs differ from the, the, majority of the population we can enable their participation um instead of disabling them by finding ways to accommodate their access needs yes oh yeah i love that you know one of the things that comes up for me i just want to share this and then kind of go back to your book i one of the most influential works for me in like the field of just psychotherapy uh he was actually a student of carl jung james hillman Oh and, yeah, I know Hillman's okay. work. Okay, he he wrote he kind of co-wrote a book, which was a series of interviews with a actually a Los Angeles-based journalist, I believe, Michael Ventura. Where <laughs> the book is called "We've Had a Hundred Years of Psychotherapy and We're Not Any Better," which, <laughs> which, which, which I think is actually fascinating. And I mean, mm-hmm. they 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 write and talk about a lot of different things, but there's this one line in the book that really struck me, where Hillman basically says, "Look." In psychotherapy, we kind of operate at the time under the assumption that we have, you know, in scare quotes, a sick soul. Our, our, our client or patient has a sick soul. So the reality is we live in a sick society. Yes. And, and so he was trying to push people toward thinking about the toxicity of the system or the environment. And, and where I want to link that to your book, this was really striking to me. So working, I think about 95% of my clients are autistic working, you know, pretty heavily in that community, you hear a lot from parents, well, my child is high functioning or low functioning. The other day I even heard mid functioning, which I'd never heard about before. And what I loved about your book is you said, you know, we actually have to apply those categories to our society. Do we have a high functioning or low functioning society? And I was just wondering if you could kind of unpack that because that was really eye opening for me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's essentially it. You know, that I, I that a uh, these labels get applied to autistic people uh, and they're really like they're they're highly, you know, what I call neuronormative. Mm. They're highly biased towards a particular constructed social norm, which is the a non-autistic social norm. So autistic people get called high functioning or low functioning. And the assumption behind that is that there's a non-autistic way. That's the right way to function and you're higher or lower, depending on how close you come to being able to imitate that. Mm. And so, you know, when an autistic person is called high functioning, it usually just means like they are able to imitate a non-autistic person you know, to some degree, and uh, which is not necessarily healthy for them to do. 
Mm. You know, it may mean sacrificing the true self to do that and being under constant strain, forcing themselves uh, to do it. And also with when somebody gets labeled as high functioning, it's hard to get them accommodations. You know, they're, they're, you know, it's hard to get them their actual access needs accommodated. If you're like, oh, you're high functioning, you don't need that stuff and don't realize what's happening is the person is exhausting themselves and destroying themselves trying to fit in and trying to act like a non-autistic person because that's what they've been taught to do. And then low functioning, if someone gets labeled as low functioning, low functioning usually just means non-speaking. Yeah. Like it's often just this bias towards oral speech and some autistic people, and it just used to be, and still is widely assumed that there's a, a, a lack of intelligence if a person can't speak. And yet, you know, I mean, Stephen Hawking couldn't speak. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. When, when you, uh, I mean, I was, what happens is when you give, uh, you know, a, a lot of non-speaking autistic people, you give them the right kind of support and training and they learn to use, uh, you know, uh, various assistive technologies like the Stephen Hawking style, you sure. know, uh, uh, voice voice synthesizer thing yes what happens is uh you know they're highly articulate um and uh you know there's some uh there's some very uh extraordinary uh non-speaking autistic poets for instance mm. um and that is uh there's a lovely book in fact uh recently out called may tomorrow be awake my friend uh uh, Chris Martin um, oh, wow. about his his work with young uh, young non speaking autistic poets, but uh, the um, uh, what happens is they get labeled because they don't speak or because and often the non the inability to speak is just sort of a, a, um, a an impairment in physical coordination mm. and. There are these physical, there's physical coordination, what's called dyspraxia, these impairments in physical coordination. And because of that, they get labeled as low functioning because uh, there's things they can't do for themselves or they can't speak. But once they're, I mean, and once they're called low functioning, then it's also hard for them to get accommodations because it's like, well, do we really need to work to accommodate this child in school? If they're low functioning anyway, they don't really have potential. Yeah. So it's, in in this whole language of high functioning, low functioning, not only sort of assumes that the non-autistic way of being is the ideal that everyone should aspire to when you're higher or lower, depending on how close you come, but it also ends up being an impediment to autistic people's access needs being met in general. Mm. Um, uh, so, you know, I really favor dropping that whole like labeling anyone as high functioning or low functioning because who can say what the proper function of a human being is you know we're not mm. machines we don't have one proper function <laughs> so true. Uh, so uh, <laughs> the um uh, so yeah so what i propose in the book is instead we call societies high functioning or low functioning and a high functioning society is one that can enable the participation uh, and well-being of more of its members. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
You know, and I and this was something Joe Schwartz brought up too. And I, I'm not an economist or a philosopher, but I, I worry sometimes that the high functioning ideal gets tethered to these capitalist modes mm-hmm. of being and production and performance that I think are problematic for anyone. And so I think oh, yeah. that kind of stuff has to be thought through and processed. Absolutely, absolutely, very much. There's, uh, and we see that even with the these the concept the concept of neurodiversity uh, being appropriated now in the uh, uh, in the corporate world and especially in the software industry and in places like the you know uh, Stanford Neurodiversity Project. Where so I'm really not familiar looking, with that. Maybe you could help me understand that. I, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, what's happening there is that there's the neurodiversity is caught on as this corporate buzzword, mm. and what but the the corporate neurodiversity initiatives are about how can we exploit autistic labor? Like, oh, autistic, you know, like some autistic people have these attention to detail talents, uh, mm. and we can exploit that in the software industry, and Got it's you. never about like it's always about like okay, these people are. It boils down to, you know, these people are desperate for jobs because they're so, you know, autistic people are underemployed. It's hard for them to get jobs because they they don't perform, you know, neurotypicality in their job interviews. Right. And so uh, so they'll be desperate for jobs. So they'll be loyal employees. And, you know, they it's never like these companies never advance autistic people to management levels. It's mm. always they're always just doing this like. Uh, grunt work, not necessarily treated well, and being, you know, this, this is an exploitation of labor. And often, you know, I mean, it's a really appalling kind of appropriation of what was intended to be a liberatory concept. So the, Stanford Neuro, the Stanford Neurodiversity Project, for instance, actively supports, uh, you know, behaviorist methods that, uh, you know, of, uh, uh, you know, uh, autistic like uh, um, uh, uh, training uh, training autistic people to act like non-autistic people like they they actively support these methods that are you know well known in the autistic community to cause trauma and harm and are essentially about suppressing the true sure. self so would so they be like encouraging the masking and the guard railing very, very much okay. encouraging masking and just like how do we get these autistic people to 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 fit in so we can, you know, uh, exploit their labor better. And, uh, just, it's very, yeah, it's, it's very capitalism driven and very exploitive and ultimately harmful to autistic people, but it kind of tries to appropriate the, the, the vocabulary of neurodiversity. Got you. You know, I I have some, this, I think this is a connect. I have some Buddhist friends that will tell me they mourn the fact that capitalism has taken things like mindfulness and meditation and used it for capitalist ends. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder if there's a connection there, if, if if it's kind of the same kind of thing. They're just utilizing something that's supposed to be liberatory and, and very humanizing and, and just <laughs> almost Absolutely. exploiting it. Capitalism has a real talent for that. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, you know, we, we uh, I mean, one can still, it's like, uh one can still uh use these liberatory tools for liberatory purposes you know mm. it's like 
you know, in a way, in a way, it's funny. I mean, I'm also a Zen practitioner, and so oh, okay. yeah, I see that. I see that appropriation of mindfulness, uh, and you know, in like how can we use mindfulness meditation to make our, uh, you know, make our workers more effective? Or and I see that happen in capitalism, and just sort of this like very like mindfulness is just a focusing technique rather than as a deep spiritual liberatory mm. technique and it's kind of a buddhist lesson in non-attachment to be like well i'm just going to keep doing my practice and you know the fact that these other people are uh doing this debased version of it for corporate profit is you know something that doesn't have to affect my practice yeah but the uh uh, it's one of the reasons that I'm really into, uh, um, you know, one of the many things that I like about neuroqueer theory and this this concept of of neuroqueer is it's very hard to appropriate because queer is such a uh, a disreputable word and you know is mm. so much like the spirit of 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 queering and queerness is so much about. Uh, uh, being subversive it's not really easy to appropriate you know there's like rainbow capitalism where they put rainbow flags on stuff to try to yeah. sell it, you know, like pride month but but they're still a shying away from the term queer and mm. you know this in, in, in inherently subversive like uh 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 was you know uh bell hooks talked about that uh with the word the weird, the word queer, that the definition is mm. fluid in a way it's fluid because it's, uh, it's always like, it starts out being about subverting heteronormativity, but then it's always about subverting normativities. It's always about how do you, how do you subvert and fuck with and not be, uh, uh, not allow yourself to be stifled by normativity. And so there's sort of like, it's one of those things that does not, uh, does not lend itself really well to appropriation by capitalism. Mm, I love that. Okay, now with that said, one of the strands that I wanted to follow with you, I, I think you you both touch on it a little bit in the book, but in other podcast interviews that I listened to to prepare for this one, you, you kind of lamented that there's been a sense in which neuroqueer has been maybe misappropriated by some in a very narrow way. Mm-hmm. And and so I'm going to put that out there for a second and maybe just make another comment to see if they're connected and you can reflect on it. I have another kind of scholar friend who writes a lot about capitalism and and you know the left but but he will say, you know, there's a sense in which the left can also fall into this super egoic morality and policing of things. Mm-hmm. And so I, I would just love for you to kind of follow those ideas and see what comes out of that. If there's anything that kind of resonates with you there. Yeah, I think that what's happened. Um, I think I, I've really turned against identity politics. Okay. I was hoping um, you'd get into that. <laughs> identity politics is, as kind of, and, and queer theory, the bulk of queer theory, uh, has always been, uh, 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 has always kind of been, uh, not, not compatible with identity politics has always subverted identity politics because identity politics at its core is this idea that like people have these essential identities, Mm. the, the, the identity 
you know, is, is, uh, uh, you know, people, the, the sex someone is born and the, you know, the, these, the physical characteristics that mark them as a particular, you know, racialized group and all right. of that, like that these are like, you're just born that way and that's your essence. And that's, says everything about who you are and uh you know then that's an identity around which you build uh you know uh around which you build your sense of who your people are and who your enemies are and uh there's this kind of a zero-sum game involved there like you know what's what's good for my people is you know is taking away from someone else what's good for some other identity group is taking away from my identity group and it's uh, it's easy to see it's easy to see when it's the people one disagrees with most doing it, you know, because when you think about it, I mean, right the the first like the ultimate in identity politics is white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And so it's very easy as you know someone who's who's uh, you know, someone who's anti-racist and who, you know, is uh, the descendant of Holocaust survivors, you know, it's very easy for me to see how toxic white supremacism is, but then a little harder to see how so-called progressive identity politics are also toxic and divisive Mm -hmm. that I even hesitate to call it left because I think when I think of, you know, as a, a, an, an older sort of leftist, when I think of left, I think of like uh, labor movements and worker solidarity and economic right. justice. Right. And in a sense, identity politics has become uh, the biggest barrier to solidarity. And it's in a sense why we don't have a well-organized labor movement in this country mm. because there's uh, there's so much divisiveness and so much sense of like uh, – so much suspicion across, you know, racial lines and gender lines and such, uh, all of which are just these, these artificial culturally constructed identities mm. and people identify with them. And, uh, and again, really easy to see how toxic it is when people are building their entire identities around a toxic, around toxic masculinity or around, um, uh, you know, around, uh, whiteness and white supremacism harder to see that it's it's really toxic when any group does it and that you know identity politics has to some degree maybe been a necessary stage in the uh liberation movements for various groups but it becomes a place where people get stuck Mm. and where it becomes a barrier to connection and bridge building and solidarity and empathy and uh, and people's sense of self becomes entrenched in these essentialized identities, and then it becomes a barrier also to uh, fluidity, to fluidity of the self, and to evolution of the self. Wow! So it's um, and I, uh, you know, one of the things when you read, you know, the the 
the fundamental like queer theorists like Judith Butler, or David Halperin, who I quote in uh, in the book somewhere. Oh, I, I love that quote. Yeah, I, yeah. I even I even wrote. I mean, I, I looked up the there's a there's I think a longer version of the quote, which is just incredible. I, I wonder if I could read it. Would you mind if I did that real uh, oh, quick? Absolutely, go for it. So uh, this is from his book Saint Foucault toward a gay hagiography. If I'm saying that correctly. Um, Queer is by definition whatever is at odds with the normal, the legitimate, the dominant. There is nothing in particular to which it necessarily refers. It is an identity without an essence. Queer then demarcates not a positivity, but a positionality vis-a-vis the normative. Queer describes a horizon of possibility whose precise extent and heterogeneous scope cannot in principle be delimited in advance. Yeah, wow. I love that. Drop the fucking mic, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you and that horizon of possibility, and that's the title in my book of that final essay on neuroqueer theory, which is, is a one of my favorites. Of possibility. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's kind of the whole book. Kind of, you can see. To me, the book is the book neuroqueer heresies is an evolution. Yes, because if you look at the early chapters of my earlier writings, you know, my initial writings on uh, on. Uh, autistic liberation that are reprinted in the book. There's a lot of identity politics in there. There's a lot mm-hmm. of sense of autistic identity and like the, you know, the, that sort of uh, uh, policing of language. That's very part of identity politics of like, you know, why you use this language and not this language. It's a very, and it was very popular among, you know, it's, it sort of helped to build my, my career and reputation that it was very popular among people who are very into identity politics. It fit very well into the discourse of identity politics. And the book kind of traces my evolution away from that, not explicitly, Mm. but you can see by the end, by that horizon of possibility, long essay at the end on neuroqueer theory, I've really turned away from identity politics and towards this fluidity that Mm. it's not, that neuroqueer for me is not about, you know, gay or straight or uh autistic or non-autistic but about everyone's capacity to uh liberate themselves from the limitations of neuronormativity and heteronormativity yes oh i love that let let me ask you i I wasn't planning on asking but but one of the things that's coming up for me is do you think in your framework and maybe a, a true kind of even saying that I don't like the way that sounds a true left position, but is there a place for enemies or do do we need to kind of move away from that? I, I think we can oppose certain things, but I guess maybe this is just my framework. I think there's too much scapegoating and enemy building Absolutely. in our, in our current climate that Absolutely. if you, if you disagree with me, that's okay. But I, I'd be curious to hear what you think. Oh, no, I absolutely agree with you. I think I think that um, building a sense of building building a list of enemies based on identity politics is a terrible idea, mm. you know. Black people are my enemy. White people are my enemy. You know, right. this group is the enemy. The gays are the enemy. Oh my God, the straights are the enemy. Men are the enemy. Women are the enemy. All of like that's all so toxic and horrible, and yeah. it twists it twists people. 
even people who are setting out to liberate themselves, you mm. know, like that, that you see people cross that line often from like women's liberation to all men are the enemy. Um, and it's, uh, I think that that sort of, there's no room for that sort of thing. Mm. Um, and you know, that's something we've got to move away from in order to, to build a better, more loving, uh, worlds that has, you know, room for everyone to thrive and be free. Mm. Um, uh, at the same time, one has to oppose, one has to oppose certain things that are, uh, you know, that are oppressing one. I think identifying yes. a particular group, like if you're born this way, you're automatically an oppressor or not to be trusted or an enemy. Like that's, you know, that leads to these, uh, you know, real monstrousness and has led of course in the past to genocide. Right. Right. Such, but, uh, to say, you know, I mean, I think at this point, like, uh, with so many people in the world starving and homeless, um, you know, a person who's a billionaire who has the resources to fix that for so many people and still live it with extreme comfort like that's evil. Yeah, that's, that's a wrong. fucking problem. I think that's a problem, you know, and so. But billionaire isn't an essence. It's like right. that's allowing for like I think at this point, in a sense, the billionaire class is an enemy because they've hoarded resources mm. in a way that's actively causing massive human suffering. Um, but a billionaire at any point could decide to start giving away all their wealth and putting it into housing the homeless and right. feeding the hungry. And then they should be embraced as a friend and an mm. ally. Yes. It's like they're not they're not the enemy forever just because they were like billionaire is a a form of conduct mm. rather than an essence. Sure, sure. So it's like the act of being a billionaire is a harmful action and that needs to be opposed. A person who has stopped doing that doesn't need to be opposed like billionaire is not an essence yes. and so i think that yes. that's you know and i see that with like um uh there's this you know behaviorist method called aba that's inflicted on a lot of oh, autistic sure. children sure. that's very I, harmful I, to many them many of my clients have sort of come from that early in their kind of their yeah their early childhood for sure i'm very aware yeah. of it you see how it's it, it harms people oh it's yeah a suppression, suppression of the true self yes 100 percent I used to have this idea, of course, you know, when I was younger and more hot-headed of, of uh, you know, ABA practitioners are, are, mm. are the enemy. And I've shifted to ABA as a practice is an enemy. Not a, the enemy is not a person. Gotcha. It's like being a billionaire or, you know, uh, racism or like, you know, just sense of scarcity and everything's in zero. Some game, some game, these habits of thought and behavior are the enemy rather than people being our enemy. Sure. And so it's the practice of ABA that is the problem. And uh, by not treating every ABA, every ABA practitioner I encounter as an enemy, 
I've converted some of them. I get ABA practitioners in my psychology classes in school who learn and are like, I'm not going to do ABA anymore. Yep. And if they came in and I immediately was like, you're the enemy, you're evil, you're foul and vile, like I would never get through to them. Mm. So, I, I think yeah. this is happening with some men mm-hmm. in our culture. I, I, I just, I end up working with guys who have felt like the enemy and, and, if I'm honest, some of their behavior has been very problematic and we have to work through that, but I think yeah. they have felt scapegoated mm-hmm. and and framed as the enemy in terms of this kind of essentialist position. And I, and I yes. think that's problematic. Absolutely. And I still, I mean, uh, it's, people still read me as male based on my appearance and sure, voice. You know, sure. I'm out as a trans woman, but when people see me on the street, that's not what they think, you know, because yeah. I'm not, you know, I'm still, uh, you know, I haven't done any surgical intervention or hormones at this point. Um, and uh, so it's, uh, I can really see that it's, it's not my conduct, that my behavior is not particularly, you know, my behavior is not particularly masculine, but I see people respond to me still based on my appearance as this must be the enemy. This must be, gotcha. you know, and I, I, I absolutely understand like, you know, men are consistently, you know, because of like toxic masculinity and such, you know, many women are victimized by men yes. like that. That happens, you know. The data shows it, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, if I'm out walking at night and a woman sees me and reads me as male and crosses the street to avoid me, I, my feelings are not hurt. Like, I get, like, this is self-preservation that unfortunately women have had to learn. And in fact, I will cross the street. To avoid a woman, to avoid avoid to avoid a strange woman, to avoid making her nervous. Sometimes. I, I I will actually do the same thing. Yeah, but uh, and it's very strange to be a trans woman and to be like you know I I experience myself as femme, yeah. but I know how she's seeing me, mm. and I want to make sure that she's not uh, you know scared that I'm not triggering trauma or something. So I'm just going to give her some space, um, but it's. Uh, but outside of situations like that, just, yeah, that scapegoating of men that, uh, you know, assuming that, you know, uh, assuming that men or anyone even assigned male at birth uh, is, uh, is the enemy um, is just is, is this terrible thing. And it definitely it, it, it causes men to get put in this polarized position of yes. being angry at being scapegoated and it, it like uh you know the really misogynist you know uh uh elements of society you know the whole like men's rights activist and incel thing and right, all that right. and, like you know and say you know joe rogan andrew tate kind of stuff like the really like the misogynist the actual misogynists recruit men that way are you mm-hmm. tired of being a scapegoat? Oh, yeah. Are you tired of being blamed as for being a man? It's like absolutely, it, yeah. It's really the scapegoating of men in a sense. It becomes like the self fulfilling prophecy because, and you know, because what are you know, people 
people band together for protection when they feel scapegoated. They band together with the people who won't scapegoat them. And uh, it's, uh, you know, I see people just, I mean, I saw people, I watched people during the Trump presidency go from like fairly leftist to full on Trump supporter because they got attacked by like, I left this identity politics yes. and it's like they, they got, you know, they ran afoul of like the whole Twitter cancel culture thing. And we're like, well, if this side won't have me, like the only people who, you know, I'm safe with are, there's this other side, you know, which I think is a, is a terrible mistake and yes. no, ex, no excuse for becoming a Trump supporter, but, right, uh, right. but it's, but uh, you know, it, it's, there's got to be some grace and willingness to assume better of people in order to avoid that kind of polarization. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, it's, that's, that's a real, uh, that's a real difficult uh, thing. You know, it's part of this, this crisis of masculinity is in which harms everyone. It's also part of transphobia in a big way, like transphobia, like the, uh, transphobic, uh, transphobic feminists, you know, the ones they call TERFs. TERFs, yeah. Yeah, TERFs, like, what's happening there, their assumption is like, you know, it's still this, like, 1960s era feminism idea of men are the enemy, and like, anyone born with a penis is male and therefore the enemy, and so Instead of when when someone's you know when when someone comes out as a trans woman, they're not like welcome sister right. you know let's show, let us show you how to be a, a good woman. They're like no, you were born with a penis, therefore you're the enemy, and you're trying to infiltrate us. Yeah, and it's that's that essentialist identity politics. It's very essentialist, there. I find. Yeah, man. And I'm so into the, you know, I'm just into the opposite. I'm into mm. the fluidity of of identity, the uh, the freedom for a person to shape themselves, sure. and uh, you know, for for identity to be a, a fluid thing rather than a set of absolute categories. Yes, absolutely. Oh, man, gosh, I'm loving this conversation, Nick. I know I said that we'd go about an hour. Do you have time for one more question? <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I'm loving this conversation too. Awesome. So I want to actually, if you're okay with that, I want to read the full quote that you bring up in your book and several other interviews from, and I'm probably going to butcher his name. He's, I guess, a political uh, scientist, Carl Deutsch? Carl Deutsch, yeah. Carl Deutsch. Deutsch. Okay, so I I kind of looked that up, and I want to read it for the audience and then just see what you have to kind of say about it and how it it sounds like it's kind of really inspired your work. And, and your project. So, so he writes, to have power means not to have to give in and to force the environment or the other person to do so. Power in this narrow sense is the priority of output over intake, the ability to talk instead of to listen. In a sense, it is the ability to afford not to learn. And I just, I just love that. Never heard that before. And it's going to be one of those quotes that I go back to. Yeah. What? And, what, yeah, what, what yeah. does that quote mean to you, and how, how it is, how it, how has it inspired your project? Well, it's uh, it's just a great articulation 
of uh, this dynamic where uh, you know people who people who hold power mm. don't have to learn like you know uh, colonizing empires don't have to learn the ways of the colonized. They mm. force the colonized to learn their own ways, and we see that also around uh, you know the human neurodiversity where there's, you know, people who are uh, more in line with the majority cognitive norms can uh, call themselves normal and force their, uh, force their styles of embodiment and socialization and everything on, uh, you know, people who, uh, for whom that's not a comfortable fit, autistic people and such, you know, and, uh, they don't it's like when there's a when there's a um a gap in understanding between uh, a non-autistic and an autistic person because of uh uh because they think differently and express themselves differently it gets blamed on autistic deficits rather mm. than on both sides need to work to understand each other. My, my uh, autistic scholar colleague, uh, Damian Milton calls this, uh, the double empathy problem. I love that. Oh. Yeah. So I, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I think it's, a this, this slippery thing about holding power and how it, uh, it makes people. It gives people the luxury of not having to learn. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> people have the luxury of not having to learn. They don't because learning is hard work. Mm. And uh, that's uh, you know that that becomes like okay. Uh, the people holding positions of societal power don't have to listen anymore. They don't have to listen to those who are in distress and downtrodden. Sorry about that. Been talking a lot lately, but uh, (laughs) that, um, yeah, that keeps worsening inequalities mm. among people and then worsens frustrations. And that starts to create also the, uh, you know, those rifts where uh, uh, groups that don't get listened to, you know, have to have to uh, form coalitions among themselves in order to be heard in order to take some power back so that they can be listened to because otherwise they're not. And then that initially becomes liberatory and then it becomes locked into identity politics and locked into struggle. Mm. And, you know, so there's, uh, there's this mindfulness required on all sides then of like willingness to do the effort of learning, Mm. um, is, is crucial and to do the effort of, uh, of listening um and then there's 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 flip sides to that too there's one of the things i see in uh identity politics is this uh uh this attitude of competitive victimhood 
Mm. where like even you know even the even the white supremacists you know and the 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 you know the white evangelical christians who've dominated society for so long now claim to be oppressed victims <laughs> and there's a you know there's in a sense there's a truth to it that we've created a society where everyone feels like a victim mm. because we've created this artificial sense of scarcity where my gain can only come from your loss because we're on different sides because we have different identities and so everyone feels victimized and like mm. there's a sense of scarcity they're not getting enough they're not getting heard because we haven't learned how to be a we and to say how can we work for the benefit of everyone and so there's this competitive victimhood of of different identity groups all claiming to be the most oppressed and obviously some of them can back that up better than others so very have a very hard time convincing me that you know white christian evangelicals uh especially wealthy ones are an oppressed group you know right you know black black people and jewish people you know have these very legitimate histories of like you know being targets of genocide you know so we we can see that some might have more legitimate claims but that's not necessarily helpful. Like mm. who's got the most competing over who's got the most legitimate claim to victimhood is not proving productive. So true. It's Man. just not helping anyone. And I think that the, the, the dangerous flip side of, you know, power, power, meaning you don't have to learn and don't have to listen. And, you know, that obviously has to be changed. It's essential to get, you know, the, the, the powerful to listen and for them to do the work of listening right. rather than, you know, have to listen once there's a revolution or something, you know, it's essential for the, the powerful to learn to listen, but also uh, the flip side of that has now become um because I feel like a victim, because I'm a part of a group that identifies as victims or is legitimately a, a historically victimized group, you have to listen to me and everything, you know, you're an oppressor if you don't agree with everything I say. Mm. And that's also like, that also becomes a problem because that's also the enemy of uh civil intelligent discourse i was gonna say it automatically shuts down any sort of constructive dialogue i really saw this i really saw this in the 2016 election and i think this is part of what cost hillary clinton the election to some Mm. uh to some degree um is that uh, there were some legitimate, very legitimate concerns. I mean, I believe Hillary Clinton would have been infinitely better than Donald Trump as a president. Same here. <laughs> yeah. But there were legitimate concerns uh, that people had uh, mm. on the left about yes. her policies, sure. about like, are you going to continue, you know, a foreign policy, the foreign policy you had as secretary of state, which was extremely destructive, you know, yes. or... You know, you're talking about staying the course economically, but a lot of us are suffering economically. Mm. Um, there were some really legit concerns about policy. And what I found that was when people expressed those concerns, you know, on social media and public other public conversations, 
they were often, instead of being addressed, they were shouted down by people saying, if you don't want Hillary for president, you're a misogynist. Yeah. And that, like, women have a legitimate claim of victimhood. Like, there hasn't been a woman president, and that's just plain wrong. But if you use that, like, women are oppressed, therefore you're an oppressor if you don't vote for this particular woman line, and don't address the policy concerns, like, you lose people. And I wish everyone had still voted for her to keep Trump out of office, Mm -hmm. but that that's uh i think that there's there's that danger of um uh people in power it's easy for them not to listen oh yeah but people who people who feel like uh they're entitled to be listened to because they identify with a historically victimized group um it's also now easy for people in that situation to not listen and what we end up with for you know uh what we end up with is more people not listening to each other so somehow there has to be this willingness for people to open to listening to each other and having empathy for each other and wanting Mm. everyone to succeed together even those groups that feel you know legitimately feel victimized or like white supremacists who maybe don't legitimately feel victimized, but they still, the feeling is genuine. They still believe it, I think. Yeah. Oh yeah. So, uh, you know, I think that that's, I think that becomes, uh, you know, and and it's, it's heretical. It's blasphemous to Mm. say, I think in the age of identity politics that like, it doesn't matter how much, you know, we need to put aside the, like, how much have you suffered? How much are you suffering now? Um, and say, how are we going to, how are we going to move forward together? How are mm-hmm. we going to solve this together? Because, you know, because it's just not working. Otherwise what we're doing now isn't working. Yeah. And that's, that's crucial. You know, that, that, uh, um, there's, how you know we somehow we went we went from a a a society where there were some people on top uh you know who felt on top of things and you know had undue power and privilege and some people and a lot of people who were oppressed and where that where we want a movement like that to go when you look at the great you know liberator uh, liberatory leaders like Martin Luther King, what they want is everybody to be thriving, everyone to be mm. free. And instead, we've somehow now created a society where everybody feels like a victim and nobody feels free except maybe like a small handful of billionaires. And it's it's the opposite it's the opposite direction from where it needs to go. And so somehow there has to be a a letting go of Our, you know, I shouldn't have to compromise because I have legitimate grievances because everybody thinks that now. Mm. And even if I can look at it and be like, oh, yeah, some of them actually have more legitimate claims than others. Oh, they're just. uh, uh, We got to let go of that identity politics thing and just say, 
how do we move forward together? How are we going to actually get out of the mess the world is in? And I don't think that uh, I don't think that picking certain groups to be the enemies and scapegoats and targeting them is going to do it. I think that's that's historically always failed and made things worse. Wow. Nick, I, I just think you're a beautiful human being with a brilliant mind. I so resonate with your perspective. Is there anything else either in your life or your project that I've missed asking that's just important to kind of talk about before we sign off today? I don't think so. I mean, if you keep asking me questions, I'll talk all day. But, uh, you know, I think there's so much to explore and I'd always be happy to speak again. But, okay, I would love uh, I that. I feel like we've, we've covered so much. And, yes. Yeah. It, but at the same time, I think there's even so much left to explore, even in the uh, neuroqueer heresies. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, m- maybe next time we can get into your your chapter on the person first language, which I think is kind of a paradigm shift and and needs to be explored in in these communities for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it has been a great uh, pleasure uh, getting to talk with you. Yes. Would you mind ending with the line of the podcast, which I ask every guest to kind of end with, which is just continue the conversation just by saying those words? Oh, yeah. What a great line. What a beautiful line. That's Thank kind you. of very, very much on point with what we were just talking about. You yes. Know, and and that's, how... that's, that's why I want people to end with it because it's kind of the spirit of who I am and what I think we need to be about. Yes. All right, everybody. Continue the conversation. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast, guys. I'd love to connect with you. Whether that means you sign up for therapy or you send me an email asking a question or maybe even explore what it would look like to get on the podcast, I'd love to hear from you. The best way to do that is to find me on my website at kikeautry.com. That's Q-U-I-Q-U-E-A-U-T-R-E-Y.com. Or you can just Google me. And there you'll find my Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter accounts. You can also go to the website of the practice I work at, where I'm the Leeds Men's Counselor. That's katiecounselingformen.com. I hope that you guys are inspired by what we explore today. And as always, continue the conversation. Mm-hmm.